0: For leading us so well in prayer. Dave Ward quipped this morning when he saw me, he said, we should be out of here early this morning, right? And I said, just for that, Dave, I'm going to plan B. So um, I also asked Eric and Matt, we all got together, I said, hey, could you guys give me a report on how many people are online this morning? Matt, how many do we have? 23 people, 23 households online this morning, and how many downstairs, Eric? Approximately. So at, least so at least 72 gathered here together. 30 households online. I think sometimes I sit here and I, I kind of feels a little lonely in here some Sundays, but we we have a full congregation worshiping together this morning, and it's it's a. I would be remiss not to say hello to my mother. I know she said she was going to stream, so good morning, Mom, and I love you. And uh, and just welcome to everyone who's online. I know uh, Ken is out back. Good morning to you, Ken. Uh, thank you for everyone who's come. Our text this week is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and our Wednesday morning men's group has been studying the book of Ephesians, and it has been such a rich and and profitable study that I thought it would be edifying for us together as a body to take a closer look at some of God's truths in this opening chapter of Ephesians. So in your bulletin, you'll find the scripture and you can uh, follow along as I read. and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Please pray with me. Lord, your word is a holy revelation to us and i am mindful that only by your spirit does it make sense and father it is an awesome thing to think that a weak and feeble man such as i could bring anything or add anything to these words and i am mindful that it is only by your spirit that we can hear that we can see and that we can behold the truth of you and of the gospel So, Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on us this morning, that we might know you better and see you more clearly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know we have many hikers in our congregation. Uh, We're home to the Soul Sisters, our women's hiking group. And I know that many of you individually enjoy hiking. Last spring, my lovely daughter-in-law, Kate, set a challenge for her and Amy to hike 27 peaks on MDI. And on occasion, they would let me tag along. And one of the coolest things I received was a, a new perspective of the park. Like, like a creature of habit s- sitting in the same pew every week, I had hiked only a few trails t- uh, again and again and again. And I never knew the variety of hikes and the beauty of the hikes that we have at our disposal. And yet, without exception, the most amazing part, other than accomplishing the hike, was a moment that happened every time. It would happen when you broke out of the forest, above the tree line, and at a certain point on the trail, there it was bam can you guess what that was it was the view the view rarely would anyone speak and if they did it was usually in hushed tones wow amazing beautiful everyone would just stop and stare and wonder at the vista before them those of you who have been to the peaks around here you, you know that view it's the Camden Hills in the distance to the west with Penobscot Bay and, and all the islands of Jericho Bay. And to the south, you have the Duck Islands and the Cranberry Isles. And to the east, you have Frenchman's Bay and the Porcupines with Scudic in the down east coast further on. If you've seen it, you know the view is spectacular. And after 27 peaks, it never lost its charm. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul, through his prayer, takes us on a hike. And he gives us a view of God's eternal plan and purpose. A view that is equally spectacular and full of awe and beauty. The church of Ephesus was obviously in the city of Ephesus. And it was the capital of Asia Minor. And in the first century B.C., it had a population of more than 250,000 residents, making it the second largest city in the known world. It was home of a temple dedicated to Artemis, which you can see on our overhead. And it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And you can see why. The church at Ephesus was one of Paul's most intensive Missionary endeavors. He spent three and a half years there evangelizing, discipling, and establishing the church. And through Paul, the Spirit worked with power and conviction, and the church grew. In fact, by God's grace, the church grew to such an extent that it was beginning to threaten the artisans who prospered financially from the temple worship and the industry associated with it. And in Acts chapter 19, we can read about the riots and protests that were organized by Demetrius, a silversmith, and other craftsmen who earned their living around the temple worship. And one day, Demetrius gathered and riled up a crowd, telling them that Paul spoke against Artemis and he encouraged them not to worship at the temple. The author, Luke, records in chapter 19, verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, Paul's friends, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Luke continues, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order that he might make a defense. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is the climate in which the young Ephesian church finds itself. In such a society, how would you instruct and pray for the church? I find it striking that Paul, in his prayer today, written prayer to the Ephesians, doesn't pray for God's protection. He doesn't pray for safety or stability. He does not focus on their trials or persecutions. Rather, he brings the Ephesians to the top of the mountain and gives them a gospel perspective. There are three aspects of this prayer that I would like to cover today. First, knowing God. Second, the hope of our inheritance. And third, the risen Christ as head of the church. In verse 17, Paul prays that God will give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know Him better. In John Chapter 17, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And again, Jesus says to his disciples, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The way to know God is to know Christ. Pastor Scotty Smith was an enthusiastic if not smug, college student. And he tells the story of going to his New Testament professor at UNC and apologizing for his attitude in class. Oh, it's all right, Scotty, the professor replied. I understand your youthful enthusiasm, but when you've been in New Testament studies as long as I have, you too will become quite bored with the whole enterprise. To this professor... Jesus had become simply an academic exercise. You can know everything about God, but not know Him at all. What Jesus came to reveal is a God that loves us and reconciles us to Himself through Christ and who wants to know us on an intimate level. There's a danger that every Christian in every church faces, and that is when they don't keep the main thing, the main thing. Many of you might not know this, but years before Amy and I joined the church, I asked Pastor Blake to mentor and disciple me. And I hope I'm not telling on you, Blake. But the first thing he did was hand me this elementary little book called The Gospel-Centered Life. Not exactly what I was expecting. I read through it in one night, and when we met the next week, I was ready to move on. Why, I asked myself, are we reading this book that a 10-year-old could understand? I had been a believer for 30 years. I had my degree in biblical studies, for goodness sake. I wanted to go into deeper things like sophisticated apologetics or nuanced theological matters. I thought I was beyond the simple gospel. Blake patiently persisted and taught, and as we worked through the book, the spirit began to work in my heart, and I began to see the method behind Blake's madness. What he was teaching me was the only thing you can add to the gospel is more of the gospel. The only thing better than a simple understanding of the gospel is a deeper understanding of the gospel. The gospel isn't a one time, one moment decision, it's a lifelong, whole life commitment. And Paul prays for the Ephesians that they might know him better. It is so important in your Christian walk. And for our church to never lose focus on this truth. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The way to know God is through His Son. And in Colossians it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. To know Christ, Is to know God. In the first half of chapter 1. Paul takes us up the trail. And says look. This is what God's plan of salvation looks like. He makes a a proclamation of what God has done. And that is what the gospel is. It's something that's been done. Something that has been accomplished on your behalf. It's a proclamation. When Caesar was made emperor, there was an announcement sent throughout the whole empire. A proclamation. Hear the gospel of Caesar. It was an announcement of an important event. The gospel of Christ is such an announcement. It is a proclamation that God has broken through into the world. It is a joyful event, a new order of things. You see, the gospel is not a philosophy or a set of ethics. It is a proclamation and it is a person. It is a proclamation of a new relationship with God through the finished work of the crucified Christ. Jesus proclaims, I am the way and the life and the truth. No man comes to the Father but by me. It has often been said that Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. And the heart of the gospel is that very thing, a relationship. Galatians chapter 4 tells us, that through Christ God adopts us as his sons and daughters and he gives to us his spirit who enables us to call out Abba, Father a term of intimacy and endearment. I heard a Muslim cleric once say a Muslim would never refer to God as a father. That God is too great too transcendent to be referenced in that way. And while it is true that God is great and transcendent, the heart of the Gospel is that God relates to us as His sons and daughters. And we relate to Him as our Father. We all know the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven. When you miss this truth and you turn Christianity into an ethical set of moral religious precepts, then you've missed the whole thing. The gospel is not an academic exercise. It is living as a son and daughter of God. Paul prays that we might know him better to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Second Paul prays that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. In the in the Bible there are two meanings for this word inheritance There's the obvious meaning of inheritance. uh, That which we most frequently think of. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And Peter proclaims, as we read earlier, that in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. There is a future glory and restoration of all things that are the riches of our inheritance. But I believe there is a second meaning of inheritance that Paul is referring to. And it is an inheritance whose focus is not on what we inherit. But on what God inherits. And that is us. His church. God's glorious inheritance is his adopted people. Hebrews proclaims that Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. And that joy is his church. This is a spiritual reality and it takes the eyes of faith to see it. Amy and I traveled to England several years ago. And while we were there, we discovered the National Trust. And a one-time membership fee gives you access to hundreds of historic buildings and their adjacent gardens. And what we learned was that many of the properties came into the Trust because the heirs had inherited These large homes, some many hundreds of years old, often they were in a state of disrepair. They had high taxes and even higher maintenance costs. And for many, the only option is to give or sell these structures to the trust. The trust, over a period of several years, would restore the structures And replant the gardens. And when people would come back to see their inheritance, can you imagine their surprise? They are amazed. It takes faith to see the building in its true glory. Paul brings us up to the summit and he says, look down there in the valley. You might be suffering all kinds of trials. Church life is hard and messy. But look at the view. This is the reality of your faith. You are God's glorious inheritance that he is known about and will preserve for eternity. This view, this perspective should make us stare in wonder and awe. Me? God's inheritance? you got to be joking. Broken, sinful, ugly, me, God's inheritance. The church, this church, God's inheritance in which he delights. Amazing, beautiful. Christian, does this truth fill you with hope? Does it stir something in your heart? Christ died and bled on the cross for His inheritance. Us, the church. Yes, the roof might leak a little and the foundation has some cracks in it. But this local church is the visible representation of the invisible truth and it takes the eyes of faith to see it. And as if if The view isn't glorious enough. Paul continues. Not only are you his inheritance. But this inheritance. This positional standing you have in Christ. Is secure. Because Christ is our head. And this brings me to my final point. A proper understanding of the church. In verses 20 through 23, Paul writes, That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way rule authority power dominion these are all terms that would characterize a world ruled by Rome in which this young Minority Ephesian church lived. I I assume they felt small and weak in comparison to the rule of the empire and their state sanctioned religions. Paul declares that Jesus Christ has been raised so far beyond these powers that they cannot touch them. Jesus' authority usurps everyone. Having been raised from the dead, Christ has has rendered powerless, foolish even, all earthly powers. The reign of Christ is so totally saturated that he fills everything in every way. The church is like a steel locomotive that will not be stopped. The gates of hell will not prevail and it takes the eyes of faith to see it in this passage and throughout all of scripture it is abundantly clear that christianity is not a lone ranger religion when paul refers to you he is using the plural you you all the idea that it's just me and jesus would be incomprehensible to paul and to any of the scripture writers there is no category or faith apart from the body. Throughout all of Scripture, God relates to His people through covenant. And though this covenant is often made with an individual, it always carries with it a corporate intention. When we realize the church is the bride of Christ and that He bled and died on a cross to sanctify And make righteous his bride, then our only response is one of love. The gospel affects our affections. Our attitude goes from one of duty to one of desire. Let me ask you do you get excited to come to church? Do you look forward to worship on Sunday morning? what happens to a church when we have this elevated view of the body when we individually and collectively live as if we are the bride of Christ what type of individual and collective transformation takes place what would a church look like living by faith in a broken and confused culture I believe that when Christ becomes rooted in our hearts, when we comprehend the grace of God and the love of Christ, then it compels us to love one another. It's like chocolatey Claire cake made for the congregation. It's an arm around a hurting brother or sister and praying together with them. It's helping the intern move into their new, new home. It gives us compassion for others. We pray for our enemies and for those who persecute us. When we understand the lengths to which Christ went to save his sheep, it produces a humility and it motivates us to share the good news of what God has done for us. Although Christ has all the power and authority, he did not come as a conquering king. Christ's exaltation and lordship proceeds from and is established upon His suffering and death. This is our example. This is our head. And it is how we are called to live. In closing, I want to give you just two brief challenges. This week, I want you to pray, Abba, Father. We need to behave and talk like sons and daughters. Pray this prayer. Pray it frequently. Paul has modeled for us how Christians ought to pray and think. This is God's truth and is meant for our edification. It is truly a means of grace for the believer. Also, pray and meditate on the fact that you are God's treasure. You are His inheritance. We need to marinate our hearts in the love of Christ for us. We are changed when we believe and act in faith on the truth of God's promises. Paul's prayer for us is that we might know God deeper. Realizing that we are God's special inheritance and that this hope is secure because the risen Christ is seated above all authority, dominion and power as head of his church. May God give us the grace to see this amazing view. Amen.